Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. Scripture says, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And this morning we're going to celebrate communion together where Jesus laid down his life voluntarily. No one took it from him, he said, but he laid it down on our behalf. If you would turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to look at a passage in the book of Matthew. And we left off in Matthew chapter 21, so that's where we'll pick up today. If you've been here with us, gathering with us, going through our study of Matthew, you know that over the last few months we've been considering Jesus' trek from the region of northern Galilee down to Jerusalem. It's the final month of his earthly life, and he's making his way down there to Jerusalem where he'll give his life. And during that process of trekking from one place to the other, ministry opportunities came up, and we've looked at them. Times to heal folks, times to minister to folks, times to teach And over the last few weeks, we've been considering, as he arrived, really, at Jerusalem, we first considered his triumphal entry into the city and the interactions with the people that he had during that last week of his earthly life, which we call the Passion Week. And here, as we come this morning to chapter 21, we are in the midst of that week. It is probably the Tuesday of the week. Uh, What we call the Last Supper will be on the Thursday. Uh, He will give his life on the Friday of that week. And every day that Jesus was down in Jerusalem, he would travel from where he was staying in the town of Bethany. He would travel into the city of Jerusalem and he would go to the temple and he would teach the people there. Now the scripture doesn't really tell us what he was teaching during those three or four days that he would go back and forth to the temple, but we can pretty much deduce what he was teaching based on the response of the religious leaders in our passage today. So look at verse 23. In 23 it says, Now when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people, they came up to him as he was teaching, and he said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? So they're asking, who gives you the right to come here and teach the things that you are teaching? Obviously they're so offended by it, it differed from something they were teaching. What gives you the right to overturn tables? What gives you the right to come here and rebuke the priest and the others the way that you are doing so? What gives you the right to ride into town on a donkey as a clear fulfillment or at least pointing to the prophecy in Zechariah? What gives you this right, they're asking him. Because his words and his actions were making some undeniable statements about who he thought he was and what authority he thought that he had. And so they asked that question, by what authority are you doing these things? Now, his response, I think, is a very interesting one. Jesus answers them. He says, well, let me first ask you a question. He says, I'll also ask you a question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority you're doing these things. Now, I imagine you are aware there's a presidential campaign that is taking place in our society. It seems like it's on the news, it's on our feeds and everything. And I feel like I've been a little too... uh, influenced by the presidential campaigns because it seems to me here that Jesus is employing the artful dodge where the person will ask a question and he'll artfully dodge as skilled politicians seem to do. You almost expect Chris Wallace to say, oh no, 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 I asked you this question. This is the one I want an answer to. But Jesus says here, well, let me first ask you a question. And it's not because he's dodging the question. What Jesus wants to do is first assess, though we know he already knows, but he wants to first assess how sincere their question is. 
That is, what he wants to do is, if he were to answer the question, well, the Father in heaven has given me authority, and they were to simply respond, well, then we believe. Then he would have assessed their answer. If, on the other hand, they were to say, well, that's not true, you're a liar, then he knows they're not really interested in the question that they're asking to begin with. And so he wants to know, do you really want to know the answer to the question that, you ask, that you're asking? Are you really sincere when you come to me with that question? And so to test their sincerity, Jesus poses them a question first. And based on their answer to his question, he'll know whether they really want to know the answer to their question. And so in verse 25, he says this question to them. He says, the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Now we see the, uh, somebody dodging a question, the artful dodge. Because rather than immediately answering the question, they instead, the group of religious leaders, the Bible says here, the chief priests and the elders, they begin to confer amongst themselves what the focus group said should be the answer. And so they go through this whole thing here and they debate. What would be the best answer in this setting to appease our constituencies? I've been watching a lot of politics, as you can tell. <laughs> and so they say this, if we say from heaven, well, then he's going to respond, well, then why did you not believe him? But if we say for man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. Nowhere in they do they say, well, what is the honest answer to this question? They just want to know what's the best answer to appease those that are in front of them. They say, if we say that John was sent from God, he's going to respond and say, well, then why didn't you listen to John? Because John pointed people to me. But if we say, well, John was just some guy out in the wilderness, then the people are going to riot because everybody thinks John was a prophet. And so... In their minds, they reason that the best response then is to just say, we do not know. And we see there in verse 27, they answer Jesus that way, we do not know. And that provides Jesus with all that he needs to know. They're not real sincere in the question that they're asking. And Jesus wasn't interested in getting into it with them if they weren't interested in seriously inquiring of him. And so notice what he says in 27, neither will I tell you by what authority I do the things that I do. Now, what Jesus will do is present a parable. And starting in verse 28, Jesus says this, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Continuing, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. And then he makes his point in 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe John. Now, it's been a little while, at least recorded for us in the scriptures, that Jesus has taught via the method of a parable. But we have seen plenty of other examples in the book of Matthew where Jesus did teach employing that method. And again, the method is to tell a simple, easily recognizable story with an almost obvious conclusion. And that's what Jesus does here, where the conclusion is so logical and so simple that the only way you would really miss the conclusion is if you were hardened of heart. And so in this parable, Jesus paints a picture of a father of a man who has two sons in verse 28. 
The father approaches the first son, gives him instructions. Look, I have this vineyard. Go out into the vineyard, work the, the vineyard. And the son promptly replies, no, I'm not going out there into the vineyard to work. I'm not your slave, I'm your son, or whatever he says there. But notice a little bit later, and I, I had to look up the spelling. He realizes he's a schmo, and he says, you know what, this is just wrong. And so he says, you know, poor dad, I'm sorry. To, maybe I didn't say the dad, but he says it, and he goes out there, and he works the field. Now, the father, after the first son said, no, I'm not going, and presumably before he changed his mind and went, the father then goes to the second son, and he asks the second son to go. And he, it says there in verse 30, he went to the other son, said the same, and he answered, I go, sir. So the second son responds very quickly, you betcha, dad. Looking forward to this is great. Thanks for the opportunity to go out and work in the field. But notice it says there in the verse that he does anything but. So he says he's going to go, but he never goes. And he either gets busy with something else or he forgets or he just willfully disobeys his father and told his father what he wanted to hear. But whatever his reasoning is, he never goes out into the vineyard. Now, Jesus will go on to draw the parable to a close and he asks a key question. It's an obvious question with an obvious answer. Now, before he does that, let me first ask a question to put this in the context of what we looked at the last few weeks. It's a different question. My question is this. You don't have to answer it, but you can if you want to in your mind. Which son appears to do the right thing? And what I mean by that is when the dad comes to ask each son if they would go out into the field or to tell each son to go out in the field, which son's response appears to be the right spot, uh, right response. And I think we would all agree. All right. The second one who said, sure, dad, but never actually went. So the reality is he may appear to be the good son, so to speak, but his response in his action reveals that he is anything but the righteous son. And in the light of what we have been looking at, the religious leaders may have appeared to be the righteous ones in society, but their response was anything but. And I think this all fits into what we have been looking at. The brat, or that is the son who said, you know what, no, I ain't going, Dad, has a conscience. And so he may have initially said, no, I ain't going, and I'm not doing it, and I'm not interested in doing it, and you can't make me do it. As he went away, there was something that was alive within his heart that began to stir within him. And it prompts him to action. And so notice now Jesus' question. He says, which of the two did the will of the Father? So I asked what, who appeared to be righteous. He's saying, which actually did? And the answer to that question, the obvious answer to that question here is the first one. And so the people say that. They say the first one. Who did the will of the Father? The first one did the will of the Father. He may not have responded immediately to the Father's request, but he does ultimately respond and even so Jesus will point to the tax collectors and the prostitutes the two worst examples that somebody could think of of sinners in society at that particular time the tax collectors and the prostitutes and Jesus points out that they may not have responded initially to the father's instructions in their life but they were responding now. Verse 31 says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Could you imagine that statement? These priests are the most righteous people in all of society. You could take a poll of all of the people out there and ask that question, who's the most righteous people in society? Everybody would answer, well, it's the priest and it's the chief 
priest. And yet Jesus says that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to get into heaven before they will ever get into heaven. This is quite a statement that Jesus is making here. No wonder they're asking him, what gives you the authority to come in here and say the things you're saying and do the things that you were doing? And the priests, just like the second son, these religious leaders, they may have been responding in the affirmative initially, but their present actions make it very clear that their hearts are very, very far from God. And so very straight up, Jesus calls them out for that. He calls out the religious leaders for not listening to John or following the example of John of those that were responding to him. And so in verse 32, it says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did. Even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, they may not have grown up going to Sunday school, or maybe they did go to Sunday school, and somewhere along the line they got a little bit off track in their lives here. And one way or another, as life went on, they ended up going down a path that was leading them further and further and further away from God and the things of God. And as we gather here, they're likely that describes some of us here. We may have grown up in a church setting here, or maybe we never went to church, and we're not quite sure why we're here today, but here we find ourselves, and we look back at our lives, and we say, you know what? My life has drifted further and further and further. For me, my life began to drift away from the Lord when I was a sophomore in high school. I was just a kid, and I was a normal, typical kid, you know, somewhat selfish, want my own thing, but somewhere right around my sophomore year in high school, I began to make these decisions and these choices that were taking me further and further and further and further away from the Lord. So that when I looked at my life, come my junior year, going into my senior year, and I looked back and I, I, how did God get that far away from me? Because of the decisions that I was making. And many of these folks here, these tax collectors, these prostitutes, that might be, and in your life as well, that may describe you. You've been going down a path further and further and further away from the Lord. And you, you would say, you know, I don't know how it happened. I don't know how I got to this place where I'm so distant from God, but I've drifted. And if that describes you, and you know, even if it doesn't describe you, I want you to point out this in the passage here. The reality about these tax collectors and prostitutes is what we should say is they were going down that path. Because in our passage here, they're not going down that path anymore. And the reason why they're not going down that path anymore is because though their hearts were initially hardened to God's leading in their life, when they heard the message of John, they responded and they believed. But that's not the case with these religious leaders. This was John's message about the Lord. Jesus said they heard John's message and responded. This was John's message, John chapter 3. Verse 36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Another time John said these words, John chapter 1. It said, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said to those disciples that were with him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was John's message about Jesus. And this morning, we're going to celebrate communion together as a group of believers. And communion is a celebration of that which John was referencing there when he pointed at the Lord and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Back in our passage here and in the time period we're looking at in the first century, we are just a few days away, just a couple of days away from the Passover celebration in Jerusalem that Matthew is cluing us in on here. 
And in the Passover celebration of the Jews, the lamb would be sacrificed on behalf of the people. They refer to it as the Passover lamb. It's a feast they have been celebrating for nearly 1,500 years, way back to the days of Moses, where they would take the blood of the faultless lamb and apply it as a covering over their lives and over the lives of their family members. Now, the very first Passover, it occurred as part of the Jewish exodus from slavery in Egypt. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 12. And hearing the cries of the people of Israel in slavery, the Lord answered those prayers and sent a deliverer whose name is Moses. And God directed Moses to go to the Pharaoh and to instruct the Pharaoh to let the slaves go, let the people of Israel go. Now, Pharaoh refused. And after a series of signs and even after judgments that came against him and judgments that came against his people, he continued to refuse until finally God would send the most serious and the most significant of the judgments, the death of every firstborn child. And we're studying Exodus on Wednesday nights. And what we've taken notice of is the way in which God made a distinction between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt to protect his people from the plagues of Egypt. One other thing that we took notice of is he did this sometimes, but not every time. And there were times where some of the plagues, the effect of those plagues affected the people. When the water was turned to blood, water was just as scarce to the Jewish people as it was to the Egyptians. Now, the death of the firstborn is one of those instances where it didn't matter if you were a Hebrew or an Egyptian, if you were a slave or you were a free man, or even if you were the Pharaoh himself, because the Lord decreed this. Exodus 11 says, After midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, the Jews, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. The judgment of God was coming, not in the form of some biting flies, or by the turning of water into blood, or through gnats, or through great hailstones, but the judgment of God was coming in the form of the death of the firstborn son of every family. And whether you were a free man or not, didn't matter at all. There was only one way to escape God's judgment, and Moses explains what that one way is. I want to read to you Exodus chapter 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Verse 7, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover." 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments, for I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Slave or free, Egyptian or Hebrew, Pharaoh or not the Pharaoh, the one way to escape the coming judgment on the land of Egypt, we see there in verse 13, and that is to apply the blood of the lamb so that when the Lord saw the blood, he would pass over that home. And notice that little phrase there, I will pass over you, it says. That's where the term Passover that the Jews celebrate comes from. That God would pass over wherever he saw the blood applied to the inhabitants of the home. He would pass over that home and the inhabitants of the home would be spared of God's judgment. It was with these things in mind that John declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son to save the world. Now check out these words. That's John 3.16. I'll read it to you. God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God so loved the world, he sent his son to save the world. Now, the passage continues, and I think it's significant. It says in verse 18, so that whoever believes in the son, in him, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Just as there was one way to be saved from the coming of God, the judgment of God back in the book of Exodus, so too there is only one way for us to be saved from the coming judgment of God on our sin. Hear this. A person is not condemned because they reject the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, some of you are probably, what? A person is not condemned because they reject the the work of Christ on the cross. According to the scripture, we are already condemned. According to the scripture, again, if you look there at chapter 3, verse 18, whoever does not believe is condemned already. Jesus Christ came to, to save us, to rescue us from that condemnation. The prophet Isaiah tells us this tells us that sin separates us from a holy God. Isaiah 59, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now notice King Solomon in another place, he would remind us of this truth that all of us are sinners. He says there is no one who does not sin. And so if sin alienates a person from God and all of us are sinners, then every one of us are alienated from God by our sin. We have a problem, and it's a significant problem because we learn this in the New Testament, that the penalty of sin is death and judgment. Romans chapter 6, the wages of our sin is death. And so as we come to the communion table this morning, I think there are some things that we can glean from this parable of a father calling his two sons to labor in his vineyard. The first is this, as the father called his two sons to labor in his vineyard, even so your heavenly father calls you to labor in his vineyard. Now, what does that mean? What's the work that God wants me to do? John chapter 6 answers that question. 
It's an account of a group of people that came to Jesus with a simple question. They said to him, Lord, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What a great question, isn't it? What must we do to be doing the works of God? Here's Jesus's response. Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the work of God. Believe on his son. I want to go to heaven. Most people think, okay, go to heaven. Well, then you better be a pretty good person. You better get busy doing a whole bunch of good deeds. The reality is the scripture teaches the work that God approves is that we believe on his son. Too often, I think humanity thinks that the work of, that God would have us to do is a bunch of good deeds or a bunch of sacrificial acts or all kinds of things like that. And the thinking is that by doing all of those good deeds, somehow we earn God's grace. And the reality we know is that we could never earn the grace of God. And if you could, then it would no longer be the grace of God. There is certainly a place for good deeds and for good works, but not as a means of earning God's favor, but rather in response to God's favor. The work that God would have us to do is to believe on his son, as it says in 629, that he is sent. To believe that each of us are sinners and that sin alienates us from a holy God and that the only way that sin could be forgiven is for us to place our trust in the work of the sinless one who paid our penalty on a cross. So the first point, God calls all of us to labor in his vineyard field. The second point is this. Notice also in the parable that the father speaks to each son individually. And even so, our heavenly father calls out to each one of us individually as well. The whole world is invited to respond, but each one of us must respond on our own. The status of a person's relationship with God is not dependent on, say, their mother or their father. And so for young people that are here in this church, you're not a Christian because you grew up here in this community and your parents brought you to this particular location. Every one of us must respond on our own. The status of our relationship with God is not dependent on mom or dad. It's not dependent on our husband or wife. And many times we see people, one part of the, the husband and wife team, being dragged to church to make the other one happy or whatever. And somehow thinking, well, if she gets in, I get in. Or he gets in, she gets in whatever it may be. The reality is it's not dependent on your husband or wife or your present group of friends. It's not dependent on your nation of origin. There are a lot of people that think all Americans go to heaven, like all dogs go to heaven, all Americans go to heaven. The reality is that's not true at all. Every one of us, the Holy Spirit calls out to each one of us to come and receive the gift of salvation. Revelation 22, it says, now the spirit and the bride, the bride would be the church, we echo what God's Holy Spirit is saying. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's each of our responsibility to respond to the invitation. The father in the parable went to each son and extended an invite to them. And even so, the Lord extends an invite to each one of us here this morning. And notice this finally about the parable. The father invites his son to go and work in the vineyard today. He invites his boys to go and work in the vineyard today. Not some distant time in the future, but this day. The scripture says that today is the day of salvation. It says in another place, and this day, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. And so regardless of where you have been and how far you may have wandered, the Father extends an invitation for you to be right with him today, this day. 
the Father extends that offer to you. To believe on his Son, to have your sin forgiven, for your heart and your mind to be cleansed of that sin, and for the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to come into your life to empower you and enable you to live the life that God would have you to live, a life of godliness. Ours is simply, yours is simply to receive that invitation. And when we go to the communion table in a few minutes, I'm going to give you an opportunity and each of us an opportunity to do that. Let me point out one final thing from our parable this morning before we take communion. We've been focusing a lot on the first son, who though initially hard-hearted to the father, nevertheless responds to the invite. And the idea is, look, you may not be walking with the Lord, you may not have been walking with the Lord or whatever, but you can return. And I think that is a significant message. But there is a second son in this parable as well. And I think the second son resembles many churchgoers throughout the world and perhaps here this morning. Folks that have grown up in and around the church or they come to church every Sunday because somebody brings them along or just because it's a nice place to go and hang out with some other folks and there's pretzels for sale at a discounted price to raise money for missions or whatever. But like the first son, they keep up an external appearance of religion but their heart is not right. Like the first son, they have every intention of doing the Father's work someday. Someday I'll do the Father's work. They admit that the word of God is true. They intend to get serious about God and his work someday, just not this day. If that sounds a lot like you, may I exhort you with the same passage of scripture that I spoke a moment ago. As the scripture says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Today is the day that each of us need to respond to the leading of God in our hearts. I mentioned Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Egypt earlier. If you've been participating in that midweek study in the book of Exodus, or if you've read through the book of Exodus, then you know that instead of him responding to what God was doing in his midst, Pharaoh again and again and again would harden his heart and rebel against the work of God until, and it's a, it's perhaps one of the most sobering passages of scripture. He would harden his heart. God would do something. The pain would come on him. He'd say, Moses, please ask God to take it away. And I promise I'll be good. Moses goes, prays, God takes it away. And he goes right back to where he was before. And the scripture says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart once again and refused to let the people go. God was working on him. He was willing to listen. But as soon as, you know, everything was let up, he went right back to where he was before. And then the scripture says this, that Pharaoh hardened his heart to the point where his heart was hardened over. And he could not hear the voice of the Lord anymore. And my friends, it's dangerous. And it's a very real possibility for anyone that responds to God's leading that says, yeah, yeah, I know that, but I just don't care. Or yeah, yeah, I know that, and someday I'm going to clean things up and get right with the Lord. It's a very real possibility that you could harden your heart to the point where it is so hard that it can never be softened. And so this morning, if you've been seeing yourself in this parable and in the response of the second son and saying to yourself, you know what, that's me. I talk a good game. I have the appearance of life. But the reality is I'm very, very far from God. Well, know this. Jesus extends the same invite to you that he extended to the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And so this morning, receive the gift of his salvation. And maybe you've done that, but this morning, receive the gift of his lordship. Say, you know what, Lord? I'm totally yours. 
And so why don't we bring the worship team back. Ushers, you guys can come up. Gals can come up as well as we're going to get ready to start distributing the elements. And we're going to sing a couple of additional songs. You'll get the elements there. Hold on to those elements. We'll take them together as a body of believers. And as you're beginning to receive these things, in a moment, guys, I'll tell you when to head out. If you're far from the Lord, and perhaps you've always been far from the Lord, and yet for some reason you're here this morning, then may I encourage you, use this time to draw near to him. I was reading recently of a fellow communicating with another one, kind of through letters, and he just said to the guy, you know what, just ask, just pray. Just say, Lord, if you're real, reveal yourself to me. God is faithful, and he answers that prayer again and again and again. And as you're sitting there, and you're not even quite sure whether you believe or not, I would encourage you, just utter a couple of prayers to the Lord. Meditate on these realities of what the Scripture teaches, that God the Father gave his Son as the means to your salvation. And as this song is playing and God is ministering to your heart, ask him to forgive you of your sin. Place your trust in the work of Christ. Ask him to accept the death of his son on your behalf as a payment for the penalty of your sin. And use this time during this next song to receive that gift. Now, for those of us that have been around the Lord a lot, maybe you would even say, I've always been around the Lord. All my life, I've been thinking about these things, introduced to these things, hearing about these things. But you have never developed a relationship with him. You've been around him but you've never developed a relationship with him, then I encourage you, use this next time, this song, to get your life settled with him. Come to him as one that may have everything together on the outside, but it's a mess on the inside. And say, you know what, Lord, no more. I submit my life to you. Reign in my life. And then finally, let me just make this last point. Maybe everything in your life is humming along. You're in a good place with God. You're in love with the Lord and you're in love with his leading in your life, and you're seeking to respond to that daily. During this next song, may I encourage you, use this time to remind yourself of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because I think something, sometimes it happens for us as believers that the place and the preeminence of the cross in who we are as followers of Christ can sort of fade to the background, and we can almost forget it. And we just begin to think, you know, what it means to be a Christian is just sort of, oh, I make sure I have my quiet time, make sure I go to church, make sure I don't curse at people and cut them off when I'm driving and things like that. And we can kind of, this is all the stuff we do when the reality is it's all about the cross of Christ and the sacrifice of our Savior. And so if things are going great for you, as this song plays, rejoice in your salvation. Meditate on his goodness and kindness. Offer up your prayers of thanksgiving. If you have some sin area in your life, confess that as such and delight yourself in this truth that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us, as 1 John says, from all sin. Let's pray together. Father, we look forward to the opportunity to come to the communion table. And Lord, I think of that father going to each one of his kids and Lord, somehow you're able, even in the midst of this room, to come to each one of us individually and do business with us. And Lord, you know where our hearts are and we pray that you would minister to us during this time where we are at with you. Lord, for those that yet believe in you and the work of Christ on the cross, I pray that you would open up their hearts right now to believe. Lord, for those that have heard this message again and again and again, for years, 
and it's never impacted them, Lord, I pray you would pry open their heart. Lord, you would cut through those layers of skin that had hardened over their heart. You'd open up their heart, and this morning and in this time, it would all make sense. Father, it's for those that are running with you hard and are loving you. Lord, would you just refresh us this morning with the knowledge of the cross and that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Lord, the fact that as Hebrews says, we can come boldly into your presence and enjoy your presence. We, those sinners, have been forgiven, washed, and cleansed. That he who had no sin was made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, that these truths would flood our hearts and that the joy of our salvation would come out even in our song. And so, Lord, we commit the rest of our time to you. Do business with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.